to another episode of Corn Fed Coaching, a long-awaited episode, and we're very excited once again, a very special guest, Nick Garcia, on the podcast today. Nick, how are you doing? I'm well. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate uh, you taking some time uh, out of your day, busy schedule, to uh, join us, talk some soccer here. Um, As we always do, we like to just kind of give you the floor, kind of tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the game initially, um, kind of your trajectory as a player. Obviously, uh, you have quite this uh, story, so love to hear all about it. And then we'll kind of uh, as we go as well. So I'll uh, let you take it away. All right. I appreciate it. Uh, and happy Friday. It's almost the end of summer, and uh, it's kind of hard to believe. It's, it's bittersweet for me. I've got kids going back to school, so that's a good thing. And uh, all of our soccer stuff here in Kansas City is in full swing. So um, I don't know really kind of where to start. I mean, I guess I'll start in the beginning for me. And, you know, growing up as a kid in Dallas, um, you know, I was introduced to the game like everybody else at kind of a recreational level. So um, I was able to play um, in my local uh, soccer association there in Plano. And that's where I kind of got my feet wet. So um, from what I can remember and what my parents kind of recall, you know, I I was one of those kids who was always eager to go and play. Um, I was always happy to be outside and I just needed a, a place to go out and exert some extra energy. So soccer was my natural calling. Um, you know, I've tried baseball over the years. Track was probably my, my second best sport. Basketball, I probably uh, fouled too much as a kid um, and never really understood it. So um, thinking back about the culture of, of the game and how it was and you know, the, uh, the 80s in, in Dallas, um, and I think even to this point in, the, in America, you know, soccer is still a game that is passed from the ground up, you know, meaning that it is passed from the, the parents up, or sorry, the, the, the kids up to the parents. So, you know, my, my dad was a, a track guy. My mom grew up in a farm in South Dakota. So, you know, there really wasn't a lot of soccer prowess. And, you know, I, I got better by playing with my buddies uh, on the playground, um, there obviously in, in my rec years, and then from there, um, you know, I, I wanted to go and compete at a higher level. So um, my competitive years started there in Dallas in the, uh, in the Classic League, which I think is still around right now. Um, and it was the best guys and the best clubs. Uh, I started with the Comets. I went on to the Dallas Texans, you know, won a couple of state cups. And, you know, I was lucky enough to have some great uh, coaches from some very diverse backgrounds. Uh, I had an Englishman, I had an Iranian, I had an American. And I think for me, that really helped to open up my eyes to how the game was perceived in style and technique um, and tactical awareness. And I probably didn't realize it until I got a little bit older. Uh, But I think it really helped me because I was in an environment uh, and challenged every day. And obviously, growing up in Dallas, you can play year-round. So, you know, the, 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 the typical seasons, you know, fall and spring outdoors, winter indoors. Um, you know, my parents, like everybody else these days, you know, would kind of cart me around. Um, and soccer was, I, I think, somewhat affordable back then. I think it's gotten more expensive, as, as we know. Um, and, you know, again, playing in Dallas, you know, we had probably some of the best competition, I think, at the time. And I think they still have some some very good clubs down there. So, um, from from that kind of competitive piece, um, I was very fortunate enough to to go into some state and regional and some youth national team camps um, when I was twelve and thirteen. You know, before IMG was around, Bradenton uh, Olympic Training Centers and all this stuff. 
um, Cocoa Beach was kind of the stop for all the uh, the regional teams. So um, that's where I would kind of spend most of my summers as an 11, 12, 13-year-old. I got picked up, you know, obviously with the, the regional team and then the youth national team. So I think that started probably when I was 15 or 16. Um, Manny Schelscheidt, Glenn Myrnick, um Ziggy Schmidt back in the day, those guys were all involved with our uh, youth national team. Um, you know, we kind of travel up and down from Florida all the way up to Jersey, you know, getting in as many games as we could. Um, you know, so you got to think kind of early 90s. So this was, you know, Peter Vermes, Mike Burns, Tony Miola, John Harks, all these guys on the U.S. national team. Um, one of the, the most fond memories I have is probably traveling uh, with the U-17 national team to Pasadena. Uh, we were tra- training there in Chula Vista, just outside of San Diego, and we got to see the 94 World Cup team play Columbia in the Rose Bowl, uh, which was pretty cool, right? Um, and if anybody remembers that, it was an own goal. Um, the Colombians were not happy. Uh, <laughs> obviously, someone someone died there from Columbia, uh, and you can kind of <laughs> read between the lines. But um, that was probably my, my first and, and coolest experience uh, with international soccer, um, you know, and this it was pre-9-11, uh, right? And we were able to travel the world uh, very easily um, as youngsters. So I, I remember, you know, at 12, 13 years of age, I had a passport and I was gone for a couple weeks to a couple months at a time. And it made me grow up pretty quick. Um, to this day, I have no regrets about that. But, you know, it's not something that I would want for my own kids or a lot of kids out there. You know, uh, culture has changed. You know, life has changed. Um, so from there, you know, the, the U-17s, we went to the Youth World Cup in um, Ecuador, uh, probably one of the craziest places I had been to. Our CONCACAF uh, qualifier was down in El Salvador, and that was right after their Civil War. And that was kind of a, a crazy time um, because, you know, we're, we were in these military barracks with barbed wire, army guards, and it was kind of the first time kind of being out of, uh, you know, an American kind of normal setting, right? Uh, we did well. We qualified. So on to Ecuador we went. Uh, I think we played Japan, Spain, and I think, uh, oh, I don't remember who else it was. Uh, but we ended up not doing too well. We fared all right and kind of got knocked out. So that was kind of my first experience with the youth national teams. Um, from that point forward, uh, I trained in the summer uh, with the Colorado Rapids. Uh, so think about 95, 96. They were training. Glenn Myrnick, who was one of my U-17 coaches, was the coach at the time. And I had asked him if, if I could go and train. So I was one of those guys growing up that was very, very self-motivated. I wanted to go and play. I wanted to challenge myself. Uh, and I was always, always, always one of the fittest guys. I might not have been one of the most tactically or technically sound players. Um, but it was one of those things where, you know, I could go and apply my trade. And I was, I was a workhorse. And I knew that. So um, for me, I knew that I had to get better technically, and over the years I did. So, you know, before I went off to Indiana University, I trained there, uh, like I said, with the Rapids. Um, at the time, you know, we were kind of going from the 17s to the 20s. So Ziggy Schmidt was the uh, the caretaker of the 20s, and again, we kind of bounced back and forth from Florida to the Olympic Training Center. Um, guys, I think most everyone would know would be Tim Howard, Taylor Twelman, Steve Trindolo. Uh, Nick Romando, Carlos Mocanegra, uh, John Thornton. I mean, massive, massive guys, if, if you look back at, at it now, that have represented our country, uh, that are doing well within MLS at a whole host of levels or broadcasting. So we had a great group of guys 
Um, and again, you know, it was World Cup qualifier. Uh, we qualified. We went to Nigeria in 99, probably the hottest place I've ever been to in my life. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, talk about getting there, playing. Uh, we did well again when we were in Nigeria. We spent a month there. Uh, we played. Xavi was there. Puyo was there. Um, I think we ended up beating, I think, Cameroon or Ivory Coast. Um, so the, the competition has always been great, obviously, at those levels. Uh, but it definitely woke me up. Uh, Major League Soccer had, had you know, started, I think, about two years in. And it wasn't really on my radar of, of something to, to kind of tap into. Um, I think at the time, Steve Trindolo and maybe Bocanegra were the only two guys, uh, with the exception of John Thornton, who was there at Manchester United's um, Academy. You know, who were getting offers to go to Europe. So um, I chose to go to Indiana. Um, at the time, I actually wanted to go to UCLA, but Ziggy Schmidt, again, who was our 20s coach and the UCLA coach, had said, Hey, you know what? I just don't have any money for you. You deserve to go somewhere else. Um, Indiana happened to be my last visit, uh, other than Creighton, UNC, and I think uh, South Carolina. And so I just fell in love with it. So um, no regrets in going to IU and spending three phenomenal years there. You know, we won two uh, national championships. I was the uh, national freshman player of the year. I'd come in, um, you know, uh, from my high school season as the Gatorade national player of the year. So I think there was probably some pressure on me, uh, but I was never really one of those guys to kind of sit back and think about what I had achieved prior. So it was probably more fuel to kind of motivate me to prove myself again. So, you know, when I was at IU, I had gone from kind of a, a midfielder, a number six role to a number three kind of sweeper back role. I had never played sweeper in my life, but Jerry Eagley obviously needed me there at Indiana. And so uh, we were very successful. You know, I think in the three years that I was there, I think we lost three times. Once to UCLA, uh, I think once to Brown of all teams, or Yale. It was actually Yale at <laughs> Brown. And then we lost to uh, somebody else. So um, that team that I played with was, was phenomenal. Um, everybody knew their role. We knew what we had to do. No one did too much. Everyone kept each other in check. Um, and we really competed every day, whether it be ping pong before or after practice to stuff during practice, um, held everyone accountable. We knew we were there to study and go to school. And that was really one of those things that, you know, I didn't take for granted. You know, having a full scholarship and, and being the only kid from Dallas there was great. I loved it. Um, so I applied myself, you know, coming out of uh, Indiana after a national championship. Uh, I got drafted by the Kansas City Wizards, now sporting KC, uh, with the number two overall pick. And, you know, I saw it as a great opportunity to come and play with Bob Ganser, or for Bob Ganser. Um, Tony Miola had just gotten picked up. Uh, Peter Vermes was here. Chris Henderson, Mo Johnston. Uh, who was a Rangers uh, and Celtic guy. So we, we had a great group of guys here um, kind of going from, you know, high school to college to the pros. Uh, oh, and I forgot to add, I won five championships in a row. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a, a cool, interesting fact. And again, I'm not one of these guys that likes to boast, but, you know, having two in, in high school, two in college, and then I won MLS Cup my rookie year. Um, and I played 100% of the time, and I was very, very fortunate. So, again, I, I think it all kind of goes back to a lot of hard work. Um, and, again, I wouldn't choose it for really many people at all. Um, I missed dances. I missed proms. I missed vacations. I missed a bunch of stuff. Uh, 
but again, to this day, I don't have any regrets. Um, so yeah, so kind of talking a little bit about my, uh, my professional career, you know, in Kansas city, I think I played over 250, maybe 300 games consecutively. Um, from day one, I was a starter. Um, I think a lot of that is due to the fact that the coach believed in me. The team wasn't doing well. Um, I understood my role and I embraced it. Um, you know, if the coach wanted me to go jump off a bridge, I would have jumped off the bridge and done it a hundred times. So I think a lot of it also is, is the guys that I had around me uh, because, you know, they knew what it would take to kind of get the job done. They told me, I listened, um, and I went about my business. And, you know, you have to kind of think back in, you know, 2000, MLS still wasn't, you know, a big league. You know, I had to scrape and claw being the number two overall pick to make $30,000 my first year. And again, I was a starter. Um, I will say that I did have a very good year and I was able to incentivize through my contracts to make a lot more than that. Um, and so it kind of helped me begin a, a great path. Um, I understood the business side pretty well. I had an agent at the time. Um, and then as the league grew on, you know, I obviously made more, I understood what I needed to do, what I didn't need to do, what I would need an agent for. So, um, I think of looking back at it, I think Peter Vermes, you know, was, was a great mentor for me. We didn't have at the time any kind of a, a retirement fund, you know, so I started a, a, a Roth a retirement piece. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the soccer days are completely different, right? I mean, it was kind of plane, train, and automobile. You know, these days guys are paid more. They're treated better. Um, I don't begrudge them at all. But I think like anything else, you know, in history, we have to understand where we've come from. We have to understand where we are and, you know, what's kind of come before us and, and look to the future. So I guess that's kind of me in a nutshell, uh, you know, in my professional and playing career. Right now I'm the executive director there at uh, Sporting Brookside, which was formerly Brookside Soccer Club. Um, and it is a 45-plus year not-for-profit uh, that operates there in kind of the urban core of, of Kansas City. So to date, we serve about 5,000 players per year um, on the recreational side and about another 300 on the competitive side. And had you asked me, you know, 10 or 20 or you know, at the start of my professional career, I would have never told you that I would have done this or that I would have had a passion for it. But what I can tell you is that I'm very passionate about helping the 99.9% that will never, ever go and play professionally or in college um, because I feel like I'm doing my part to pass on the game uh, when it comes to that cultural piece. So, you know, part of our duty and our mission here at Brookside is to make sure that things are inclusive, that they're affordable, um, and that they're a safe environment to, you know, for kids, families, and, and coaches. So coaching education, I think, is probably big on my list, especially for those moms and dads that want to get involved, uh, because I'm, I'm a firm believer that that's how we will change this game. Um, you know, long gone are single file lines, long gone are kind of these drills that we used to do. So it's being efficient at managing people and time. Um, you know, I manage referees as well, the uniform. So everything that an executive director would do, um, I do. And I've got a great staff, even though it is a very, very small staff. Um, people, I think, like to work for the club. You know, we are very loyal. Um, even pre-COVID, you know, everyone would work at home. I wouldn't be the guy looking over people's shoulders as long as we got our work done and treated people fairly and respectfully. Um, we had no problem. So to date, I think people really appreciate our transparency and, and where we're at. Um, you know, we start our programming here in about a month. 
and we are back to our pre-COVID numbers. Uh, people, again, trust us. They want to be outside, and uh, we still provide an eight-week program for close to nothing uh, compared to what a lot of uh, other facilities and organizations can do. Wow. <clears throat> There's a lot <clears throat> we can dive into there. Um, <laughs> let's start with uh, the playing career and the, and the playing piece. So I want to know a little bit just about how you think the game has changed since you played. And obviously the MLS has grown so much and you're still involved a little bit. And uh, But just well, I know you watch games and things like that. So how do you think it's changed from that aspect? And also with, with, your, with your position too, how has defending changed since you played as well? Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. I, I think when I retired, so I went from, like I guess I didn't allude to this in, in the, the earlier part. So I spent eight years in Kansas City, a year and a half in San Jose, and a year and a half in Toronto. And all three of those are completely different scenarios. Um, in all three places, I, I was a defender. Um, I was a captain. And into my, you know, twilight years, I saw less and less playing time. Um, and I think it, it really probably bothered me or I was concerned about it because I felt like I could and should be out there. But at the end of the day, you know, being, you know, 29, 30, 31, the wheels just kind of start to slow down. So um, I think the game has gotten faster. I think it has gotten more technical. I think you are seeing more players with greater technical and tactical ability, um, whether they be of Latin descent, Eastern European descent uh, that are coming over to play. You know, no longer is it a uh, kick-around league for a guy like Lothar Mateus or David Beckham. So uh, I think for those reasons, the league has changed for the better. Obviously, the pay has gotten better. Um, there's a lot more money for ownership and for players to make. Uh, but at the end of the day, the players want to win trophies. You know, this is one of the few leagues in the world, and I don't know if people understand this, where players get paid year-round. Um, a lot of these, you know, leagues throughout the world, Europe, Africa, Asia, Latin America, they only play while players are playing, similar to that at the NFL. So um, I know for quality of life, a lot of these guys like to come uh, with their families to bring them over uh, because kids can go to school, their spouse can learn another language, they can kind of get themselves entrenched in American lifestyle. But um, I think for the, the, the player in general, it's a lot more difficult than one would imagine. Mm. Uh-huh. So you kind of talked about it with your early youth career, um, kind of being brought in with uh, coaches from different backgrounds. And you're one of the uh, people that we've had on that had has played in the professional ranks. So I guess I'm, I'm wondering how or if it does the coaching uh, change, you know, so from the youth level, you're probably learning the game. It, it's a lot about education, you know, getting familiarized with a lot of things into the college years at Indiana and then the pro career where maybe it's more tactic, uh, tactically based. So can you talk just a little bit about how uh, maybe some influential coaches as well, but just how the, the coaching might change at the different levels if it does? Sure. So, so I think probably the, the biggest thing from kind of call it a grassroots rec to competitive is structure. Um, I think quite often, you know, at the recreational level, you have volunteer coaches, moms and dads. Um, so that accountability might not be there. Um, I think the structure might not be there and, and the, the adult is trying to do the best they can. The kid really doesn't know. Um, so I, I think you can kind of get away with things if you know what I mean. But at the end of the day, I think having a loosely structured environment actually allows 
kids to flourish, right? Because it, it really kind of almost mimics a playground of sorts. Um, kids want need discipline, um, but I think you have to do it in the right way. And again, you don't want to um, bore kids, you know. So I think that's where you know, especially here in the States, we, we've gone away from lines uh, in soccer specifically. In other sports, it might be acceptable, um, but I think the biggest difference is structure. I think one of the other big differences going from, say, rec to a competitive situation is you have like-minded players that are there for the hopefully the exact same reason. So I think the player influence changes, players push players, coaches push the group. Um, I think in general terms, that's a good thing. I think you also have more eyes watching. You know, I think to, you know, best practices here within the sporting network, you know, I, th- I think having multiple coaches at a training session at a competitive level is great. And it doesn't matter if it's college or the pros. So I think you're, you're now seeing that being implemented. I think another big thing going from, say, a competitive piece to a collegiate piece um, are the resources, you know, so you might have better training facilities. I know when I was in Indiana, um, I think it was probably us and UCLA were the top Adidas programs. So we never wanted or needed anything. It was always there. Um, our practice facilities were top notch. I think if you look at the facilities now, it could be an Akron, it could be a Louisville, it could be, um, uh, Northwestern, you know, Illinois state, you know, they have training facilities that are now comparable to the big programs. So I think that helps, um, both the women's and the men's programs. And I think, you know, the bigger jump from the collegiate piece to the professional piece. And I think you see it a little bit in some of the academy uh, pieces is you are in training environments that demand that you not only physically, but tactically and technically are on top of your game every day. Um, it's very difficult, I think, to monitor that in any environment if you don't have enough coaches or the resources. Um, you know, I know that when we have, you know, been there at um, some sporting sessions, whether it be sporting full team or the second team, you know, they've got technology, they've got, you know, uh, physio coaches, second and third coaches there. So I think more eyes, the, the better. A lot of times the games or practices are filmed. Um, back in the day, obviously that wasn't done. I think you're now seeing the technology piece come into play even at the high school and the competitive level. So, um, I think it's somewhat of a fluid, you know, morphing environment, right? If I had to kind of give you one big snapshot. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I think most of the grassroots programs are doing pretty good. I think we can all do better, but really what it comes down to is convenience and time. Um, parents don't have enough time. They need it to be convenient. And so trying to find and manipulate that to benefit the kids is probably the biggest challenge. Mm-hmm. So when, when you were, your career was kind of dying down, was going into coaching something that you were looking to do right away? Yeah, good question. Um, no, it wasn't. In fact, uh, my dad was the one who had said, hey, you know what? You need to probably do something. You know, And, and I always kind of had this idea that, you know, I, I wanted to have kind of plan B and C. And that was probably one of the biggest things that I gained when I was at Indiana in business school is, you know, have, you know, three plans instead of just one. So towards the end of my career, um, I went into L.A. to do a, a national B license uh, with, you know, Lexi Lawless, Tony Miola, John Harks, a lot of these well-known guys. And we were all kind of at a, a same point in our careers and our lives, right? And... So I, I attained my B license and subsequently I've gotten some other scouting badges. I've got some other grassroots stuff. Um, 
and what I do isn't necessarily the best thing, but it's not the, it, it, it really kind of suits me, right? I guess it's kind of what I'm trying to say. So anybody who's listening to this, you know, don't just go get it just to get it, you know, get it for a purpose. Um, I still think that we need to mandate in this country some simple, simple grassroots, basic um, licensing for any parent that wants to uh, to coach because it's really going to help the game. So um, I didn't think about it, but I, I am happy now that I have it, you know, having gone through the coaching seminars, um, having gone to some executive director uh, meetings and things with U.S. soccer in town and out of town has been immensely helpful. Um, and as you know, we don't know a lot. And I think when we can kind of glean ideas and best practices off of other people, it kind of helps to open our eyes to a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So as far as so with the uh, sporting Brookside, it's heavily on the rec side, not that it's not competitive, but. With five thousand rec kids, how many coaches and teams are you, are you are you coming up with there? And then what's the what's the kind of if you're having parent coaches, is there is there something in place that you have for as far as coaching education or parent education? So I think the the managing of parents, coaches, players, referees, and staff has probably been my biggest task to date um staff is fairly easy the referee piece because we have almost 100 referees in house um that is managed by um someone who falls under our umbrella and so we adapt to somewhat of the the fifa regulations or suggested pieces so that's been good for us uh, because obviously quality control is, is a massive piece um as you know parents aren't exactly um the friendliest when it comes to youth sports um, so we monitor that. I'm out at the fields probably at least three, if not four weekends out of our eight weekends per season to kind of monitor and see myself, talk to people, hear the good and the bad. Um, so I think those two pieces are fairly easy. When it comes to the players, there's really no issue, right? I mean, the players want to go out there. They want to have fun. The parents is probably second most difficult because they have challenges, whether it be registering rules, regulations, so it's holding them accountable, holding everyone to the same standard. And then I think, again, the most important, most difficult is the coaching piece. Um, I will see about 200 to 250 coaches per season, um, and that goes from pre-K all the way up to high school. And so the biggest thing for us is, you know, each season we have a meeting. NARS is coming up here in about two weeks where we go over rules, regulations, uniforms, do's and don'ts. Um, in fact, our rec teams use SWOPE um, as a practice facility. So I manage about 70 teams that are out there at SWOPE training Monday through Thursday. So um, it's, it's really trying to help them help themselves. So we do send out some curriculum. Uh, we offer some coaching education opportunities uh, through the women's professional team there in town. We offer some through Sporting Kansas City. Um, I'm working there with Nathan Hunt um, at Sporting to get some curriculum set um, because I feel like we've got to give people the the tools. Um, We've made it free to this point. We're talking about maybe charging for some sort of a certificate and maybe they get a ticket or an Adidas swag bag or something Um, because I think sometimes if, if things are free, people tend not to show up. So it's trying to be creative. I think at the end of the day, those that want to attend will attend. I don't want to force feed people, but I tell you what we have noticed, right? Because like you said, we are a heavy, heavy 
recreational base. We're only about 10 years new on our competitive side, and we were such a feeder system for our rec kids to go all over the place. So what we have done strategically is we have kept our um, recreational base intact. We have a competitive piece that is there as Sporting Brookside, and then we also have a piece that runs in parallel with Sporting Missouri Valley. So our better players are off to Sporting Missouri Valley, are kind of average to players that, you know, are younger and needing to, to work harder or at our sporting Brookside piece. And then our recreational base kind of sits underneath that. Um, you know, and I am a firm believer that players are not ours. Players are not commodities to be bought and sold at our grassroots recreational level. So if a player needs to be pushed on, we will push him or her on. Um, we will give them opportunities to go and train uh, with a competitive team if they're at the recreational level. If they need to go from our Sporting Brookside competitive piece to a Sporting Missouri Valley piece, we are there. So, um, And I would say that with our new partnership there with Missouri Valley, we're still trying to work out some things, whether it be camps, clinics, coaching education pieces, to really provide more opportunities to, to everyone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Nick, you you alluded to it a little bit earlier on, you know, really wanting to give back to kind of the 99.9% that won't go play collegiately or professionally. Um, I'm wondering, was was there ever ever an allure to go coaching in an academy or continue uh, the coaching path in a more competitive or or higher level, or do you was it kind of just a happen chance you landed, uh, landed there? I'd say probably more happenstance, right? Um, I think looking back to kind of some opportunities that were open, you know, before I kind of took my executive director spot, I was doing some TV stuff um, through Metro Sports and Spectrum. So it was kind of a, a weekend review show. I really enjoyed it. It got me back to the game. Um, when I got this executive director piece in between there, um, I had talked to Sporting and they wanted to know what I wanted to do. I said, honestly, I, I don't know. Um, and the door opened here for this executive director piece. So I think it happened for a reason. Um, I enjoy it. I don't have any qualms about, you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda, something else. You know, I, I look at, uh, you know, Benny Failhaber. I look at Paolo Nagamore. I look at Jimmy Nielsen. All those guys have come through the sporting vein at some point who are now under the umbrella. And I'm happy for them because guess what? I don't want to travel every weekend and put in the time. Um, and it doesn't mean that I'm not dedicated to my craft. It just means that I've got a different way of doing it. You know, I've got to kind of kiss babies and shake more hands and help people where those guys might not want to do it. So I, I think we need everyone, honestly, to coexist um, because what we do, they probably can't and don't want to do. What they are doing at the higher levels, I don't want to do and I don't need to do. So I think it's just understanding what your lane is staying in it and being very, very good at it. And I've had that conversation with, you know, a few different um, executive directors, some folks at sporting um, because I think I have my niche and um, not to say that I I think that my spot is guaranteed because I know that I have to continue to get better um, and set some different goals and parameters, but um, the game is evolving at a whole host of levels. And I think if we don't all change the way we are doing things, you know, we're going to get run over and, and smashed at some point. (laughs) yeah okay awesome um well nick we want to be respectful of time we'll we'll dive into a little bit of the fun stuff um i don't know if you were in the room when we were up at sporting with uh jimmy nielsen did the presentation i was not you were there for that that one okay so i i did a 
yeah, I did ask him who, uh, who was the best player he played with and the best player he played against. And the whole room was like, oh, what a shitty question. But the players he came out with were astonishing. So I'm going to ask you who was the best player you have played against and played with. Yeah. And then when, and we'll, we'll, we'll leave it for the, uh, for the listeners. But when Jimmy Nielsen gets on the uh, pod, we'll ask him and people will be astounded on some of the players that he's played against. Yeah, so um, I'll kind of go in chronological order. You know, I think uh, Nakata there for uh, Japan. Yeah. Uh, so he was probably f- we were probably fifteen, sixteen at the time. You know, he was already playing in Europe. Uh, I believe in Italy or maybe even in the UK. I played against Xavi when he was there. Uh, he had just started out at Barcelona and he was representing Spain. Um, I think as I've gotten older. Um, you know, probably Stoichkov, you know, Stoichkov mm. when he was there at Chicago, unbelievable. I mean, talk about a, a an unbelievable player. This guy you know, was a Bulgarian bull and uh, he was scary, uh, but, but a great professional. Um, I would have wanted him on my team and, uh, you know, we, we beat uh, the Chicago fire in the 2000 MLS cup and he was a part of that. So, a little bit of feather in my cap. Um, best guys that I've played with, um, you know, obviously I think Timmy Howard, you know, thinking back to my, my youth career, uh, he and I were, were, you know, roommates for the longest time. So I'd probably say Timmy. Um, other guys that I've played with would probably be Mo Johnston. Yeah. Um, I mean, phenomenal, phenomenal player. And then probably Precky. You know, Precky is our midfielder kind of wizard. Uh, no pun intended, you know, he had the most unbelievable left-footed chop. You knew it was coming, but there was absolutely nothing you could do about it. So, you know, those six guys are probably in my tops, and I'm sure I've, I've got a few that I forgot. Mm, awesome. Nick Chota, Nick's obviously never seen my left foot. So. I was, I was going to say, he's <laughs> Nick, we, we got on the pod. Craig Grosscastle's got a decent left foot, but he was the one that said my left foot was better, so. We'll have, to, we'll, we'll have to get out to Brookside, and I'll show you. I'll show you a couple of things. Um, I got. I got one more. Yeah, go on, John. Before okay. before I ask one more, go on. Okay. You go. You go. Um, so uh, one that might be more relevant uh, for good old uh, listeners here in Iowa. So we always love to um, take our like youth teams and go out and play kind of the, the eye openers, you know, if you will, the, the bigger showcases that are like. Oh, we thought we were really good for our, uh, you know, yeah. our state there. So I'm wondering, like, did you or like, if you have a few kind of the eye opener games, whether it be a oh, yeah. national team for with yeah. the Texans? Yeah, plenty. Yeah, plenty. Um, shoot, I, I, I'd probably say, you know, growing up with my club team, the the, the Dallas Texans. You know, we, we we thought we were hot stuff. You know, we played Fiorentina in the Dallas Cup, got absolutely destroyed. We played. <laughs> Taiwichi in the Dallas Cup got absolutely destroyed. And I think, you know, I don't think Beckham was on the team at the time, but it was a Man United uh, team. So obviously being in Dallas, we were very, very fortunate, but we got our, you know, what handed to us. So that was probably some youth stuff, you know, youth national team, you know, we traveled to Ajax, we played PSG, Barcelona, all these places. So the eye opener for me, and I was very, very, very fortunate by the time I was 13 to 15, I, I saw a lot of soccer that people even now have yet to see. So um, I think my, my youth years were very formidable because they opened up my eyes. They taught me to be tough mentally, um, to live on the road at a young age. 
And then, you know, I think professionally, shoot, I mean, you know, having close to 400 games, I mean, there were just plenty of games that, uh, that were tough and hot and tiring. And, um, you know, as a professional, I think people assume that, hey, it's, it's a great life. It's a very, very difficult life. You know, guys are gone from their families, the travel, the regeneration, the things they can't do. Obviously, the, the, the trade-off is fame and money and all that. But um, for me, an education is probably paramount. Um, and that's probably what I preach 99.9% of the time is, you know, an education will last you forever. Soccer, you just don't know. Awesome. Uh, one more thing. You mentioned that you, you were roommates with Tim Howard. I just want to know a little bit as far as, the, as his leadership and anything that you learned from him. I mean, you're being in close quarters like that. He's an intense, intense guy. And you stepping into a, a leadership role as an executive director. How many of those people that kind of you've been around have helped you step into this role? Oof. It's a good question. You know, I, I think, you know, and, and all those guys, you know, and I'm not name dropping here. I'm just talking aloud here about guys that I've seen in recent time, you know, Steve Trindolo, John Thornton, Carlos Bocanegra, Timmy Howard, you know, because people come and go from Kansas city or when I travel doing my stuff, I, I see these guys and it's always good to see them. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and quite often it's not, Hey, you know, how's the team doing? It's, Hey, how's your family doing? And we kind of, mm-hmm. it's, it's like a time warp. You know, we, we, we go back to when we were 15 and 16 and, and thinking specifically about Tim, you know, he was a kid out of Jersey. Um, he knew he wasn't going to go and play in college. You know, he knew that his pathway was going to be through the Metro stars and on to, to bigger and better things. And for him, you know, he was very, very dedicated to being the best goalkeeper. And, and honestly, back in the day, you asked him this, he was not the best goalkeeper. Um, Nick Romando and others probably had a leg up on him. Um, but you know, Timmy was such a hard worker. Um, and he and I would get into arguments and bickering fights and all that stuff. And I, I think it's good to see Tim and others, you know, apply their craft where they are, but it's 14, 15 years of age. Right. So I think if, if I had any advice for the young people out there, you know, you got to put the work in, you know, in whatever you do, whether it's a carpenter, you know, you want to be an attorney, whatever. If you don't put the work in, no one's going to respect you and you're not going to have much time there at the mm-hmm. forefront. So Timmy definitely brought that to light. Um, he gave me his, one of the coolest jerseys I think I have in my kind of collection is his last game when he played um, there with the Metro Stars and then his cup final game there at Man United that I've got signed. So, um, yeah, it's it's good, fun memories, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Nick, we appreciate your time. Uh what are you? Uh, what are you doing tonight? Are you, where are you? I am in Minneapolis. I am doing the uh, LA Galaxy Minnesota game tomorrow. So one of my my other positions is I'm a uh, match director here for Major League Soccer. So I evaluate uh, referees. I evaluate uh, the teams and bench and fans and kind of report back to uh, to New York on the the good, the bad, and the ugly. So that's probably the the next thing that keeps me very close to the to the game at a professional level. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so just here in my hotel room, going to go get a bite to eat, maybe watch some TV and, uh, nice. say goodnight to my family. Nice. Awesome. All right, John, bring us home. All right. Well, we always, I mean, you've touched on so many, so <laughs> if you, if you can pick out one, but we always end, uh, every episode with your favorite soccer memory. Ooh, favorite soccer memory. Um, 
I, I guess it would probably be my first national championship there in Indiana um, because it was a culmination of all my hard work as a kid in high school, um, being there at IU, being a freshman, uh, working very, very hard on the youth national team. So all that really kind of culminated in 98 when we won the national championship. Uh, we'd lost the year before in triple overtime to UCLA. We had like a perfect record of like 24 and 0. So UCLA was, UCLA was our only loss. Oh, so I guess that might have been my third loss. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so, so I think that was just a, a, a very, very sentimental piece um, because it was a culmination of time. So um, yeah. I thought, I thought you were, were going to say for a second uh, your first MLS goal. Um, oh, the in, first in, and only? Yeah. Only the, one. In research. Banger up. Yeah, it's good. It's good. There's a Is YouTube video. Yeah, it's Is a video, it? YouTube video. Okay. Well, definitely make sure the, the promo the promo video for this pub will be your goal. You wouldn't and, believe and I'll give you a little defender. teaser. I'll, I'll give you a teaser. So so the week prior, our PR guy, Rob Thompson, who's still there at Sporting KC, there were only two of us who had yet to score a goal. So Brandon Perdoe and myself. And so he teases it out there. I don't know if it was kind of a 40 in piece that just kind of clicked in my head. And so I score, and then like a week or two later, Brandon scores. So uh, wow. it was quite some time. I wanted to celebrate with no one. I ran away from everybody. <laughs> it was on Nick Ramondo when he was there at DC, oh, and it was oh, a howler. So yeah. check it out. Yeah. He like we blacks will. out during. He's just running. Great <laughs> for sure. Oh, class. Well, Nick, uh, we appreciate your time, man. I, I look forward to our ongoing relationship, and good luck for the season. I'm sure I will. I will see you soon. Absolutely, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. See you later. Bye.